Hi, I'm Bishop Sand. I think you're really going to like this. I've been working with Nautilus Magazine to translate their written articles into sound. So, sit back and enjoy Nautilus. Nautilus is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a different kind of audio network, taking sound to new places for your brand, startup, or organization. To learn more, email us at team at goatrodeodc.com. We're Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. This is Nautilus. I'm your host, Bishop Sand. If rules only exist to be broken, then so do boundaries. After all, a boundary is just a rule in space. And there are no absolute boundaries. Why would there be? The cell membrane needs to keep out biological riffraff, for sure, but also to ingest and excrete. Academic disciplines stultify when their borders become hermetic. Human empathy is strengthened, not weakened, by strong personal boundaries. Boundaries end up facilitating exchanges as much as blocking them, and some of the most productive activities happen in their vicinity, a concept as relevant to us today as ever. This episode is based on an article written by Ansel Payne entitled, Why Do Taxonomists Write the Meanest Obituaries? The first sentences of some of those obituaries are are brilliant, you know? Our task, although necessary as it appears to us, is not altogether pleasing. More than 20 years too late for his scientific reputation, and after having done an amount of injury to entomology almost inconceivable in its immensity, Francis Walker has passed from among us. There's like an artfulness to them. I mean, these things are like stylistically interesting. This is Ansel Payne who wrote the story for Nautilus. I am currently a naturalist um, in Birmingham, Alabama. These obituaries were written in the 1800s. Yeah. Peter Cameron is dead, as was announced by most of the halfpenny papers on December 4th. Like someone sat down and took their quill pen or whatever and were like, it was like, I'm going to sum this up and I'm going to write an artful, damning obituary. I feel obliged to protest against all his later botanical works. Why would someone be moved to write these? And why would they funnel their anger into an obituary? That seems like such a Victorian thing, I guess. It seems like beautifully quaint. We would have been infinitely better off today had he not written or published anything appertaining to the subject. A small set of scientists wrote these obituaries and their scientific descendants practice today. They're called taxonomists. We're going to piece together why they'd write these damning obituaries and why we're all, in effect, doing the same thing. To start, let's get to know these taxonomists. Behind these secret doors. Here's one of them. Nobody will ever find us. (laughs) This is Sarah Spaulding. She's an ecologist and a taxonomist. It's sort of this um, kind of old field that attracted certain people to work in it. What kind of people? Um, 
I don't know, quirky ones like me, I guess. <laughs> Taxonomists have a very unique job. Yeah. They classify and organize all living things. And they also name new species. Oh, yes. I always want to find out more. That's just, yeah, creating knowledge is a sort of, it's probably an addiction or something. It's <laughs> this is Frank Krell. He's a curator, taxonomist, and commissioner of the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature. They're often collectors. I like collecting things. I'm, I'm the last of the dinosaurs who went out and collected myself. This is Bill Weber, a hundred-year-old taxonomist. <laughs> Something we're born with, probably. This is taxonomist Daniel Leo Gustafson. I think everyone does this. Now, because taxonomists organize all living things, they often have to go back through old books to look up the first descriptions of species. It is interesting to go to old collections to look for specimens that were collected 150 years ago and imagine that, well, this guy who is dead for 100 years has done this work and it's, it's, it's just a nice experience, actually. It's a nice work to do. You are kind of communing with these dead people through the medium of their life's work. I really like going to these original pieces of literature, the old books and libraries and collections. Yes, it's wonderful to look how they did science before in former generations. How did someone describe this species? Oh, look at all of those. And um, where did they find it? And what did they say about and it? And then uh, seeing these old books, having them in my hand. And also, what's the rest of their body of work? That's something special. And I really like it. While taxonomists enjoy organizing and collecting organisms and flipping through old books, any true taxonomist comes to life when they light up the microscope. So we've got a collection of microscopes. And so you can see what I'm looking at. Wow, that's all right there. It looks like there's just these fragments of glass here, Sarah Spaulding is taking a look at tiny little organisms under the microscope called diatoms. Yep. What does that look? It looks like some sort of an organ. <laughs> or <laughs> so this is called um, Gonthonema acuminatum. And then we've got uh, Agnanthidium. Here's two cells. We have some Olocasyra italica. Um, Fragilaria, Gracil, Didymus venia, Geminata. There's some kind of calm, Cyclotella, at looking at these organisms. I'm not sure what species that is. See my friends. Delicata. Know their names. I know who they are. Ulnaria, Ulna. And I make connections looking at them. Gophonema gracil. Complicated glass cell walls. Tabularia finestrata. You might not be able to tell this is a different kind of pore. So this is, is it from a Less than 25 
microns. Uh, rose beetles. Fragilaria amphiboides. Complicated glass cell walls. Fragilaria valsheria. Pretty nice. Denticula. Um, no, diatoma subtilis. Under the microscope, subtle differences signal species boundaries. We call this the foot pole. Didymus This one has a complicated, a fantastic. And it's clear that sorting organisms into neat little categories isn't easy. We look at, well, what we find out there, what animals are out there, and try to group them into the groups they would group themselves into. You know, we want to draw these lines around things and, and put labels on them, and nature is not like that. It's this, um, it's this continuous lineage from, you know, the first microbes that appeared in a soup. <laughs> and look at what we have now are these millions of different variations on that. And, and what we're doing is going around and, and, you know, trying to chunk them all up and say that, that you know, they have some different standing when, they're this, when there's this continuum along the whole way. Taxonomists have many ideas packed into the concept of a species. But ideally, a species should pick out one unit or one entity in an ecosystem. Like drawing boundaries around one particular type of frog in this scene. Now, taxonomists will hasten to say that the idea of a species is a human construction. That's what we imply on the natural world, because we can have a handle on it, but it doesn't mean that everything works like that. It's just a sort of a working concept. To be a species, it's important that organisms have the ability to mate and produce viable offspring. But often you can't observe this happening Maybe organisms would never travel across the world to meet. Maybe they're separated by time and would never meet earlier generations. You belong to the same species as your grand-grandfather, but um, nobody would expect you both to mate, to find that out. So, <laughs> no, there is a, there is a <laughs> definite... <laughs> It's so that we look at, we, we actually de facto often use a morphological species concept. This means that organisms that look similar are considered to be, well, the same. By humans, by humans that right. what we recognize as being similar. Yeah. Now with genetics involved, um, what we formally recognized similar is often a whole bunch of different things. Uh -huh. So... But that's just a refined morphological species. Yeah, that's, that's, I know that's, that's a thing that's kind of like, how similar can sequences be to be still the same species? That is a definition too. Yeah. Of course, we are getting increasingly more knowledge about that, but there is no clear-cut solution. It is interesting to see how we decide to cut up the world. 
these taxonomists who toil down in these philosophical depths, they're just like all of us. They have a breaking point. Even if they are cerebral and mild-mannered, they can be pushed so far that a vitriol pours out. What can we say of his life? Nothing, for it concerns us in no way. What shall we say of his work? Much, for it is entirely ours, and will go down to posterity as probably the most prolific and chaotic output of any individual for many years past. Why these careful, quirky taxonomists are so important, and what happens when chaos creeps into their own careful boundaries after this short break. The mission of Nautilus Magazine is no less than to change science media. Rather than reducing and compartmentalizing, we expand and connect. Rather than dumbing down, we trust and educate. And it's working. We're the first magazine to ever win two national magazine awards in our first year. In an era when print is supposed to be dying, our print circulation grows every year and today, with the help of our partners at MIT Press, reaches around the globe. But this work isn't cheap. We rely on the generosity of our donors. Please help us continue to expand our community of readers and to maintain the highest quality science writing available today. Donations of $1,000 or more earn a free lifetime print subscription. You can donate by phone, 646-239-6858. Email at donate at nautilusthink.org or by filling out this online form at nautilusthink.org. Nautilus is published by the nonprofit Nautilus Think, and your contributions are fully tax-deductible to the extent allowed by law. We're back. And we have these gentle, eccentric taxonomists carefully plodding along, naming species. And strangely, writing horribly mean obituaries. His absurd botanical legacy amounted a little more than nonsense. But before we get into these obituaries, we need to establish why taxonomy is vital for science. So we are two stories down now. We're in the Denver Museum of Nature and Sciences collection. About 60 feet. It's a huge space. At least 12 feet high ceilings. Several collections and work rooms here. It's as big as a football field. Massive doors. Lined with metal cabinets weighing tons. They move back and forth on these tracks by metal wheels that look like they should be steering a ship. Frank Krell pulls out a drawer full of beetles, all subtly different. There's something nice. All dumb beetles fucking oh, look at all of those. There are hundreds of varieties in just this one little drawer. <laughs> Looking at these beetles, you start to understand why taxonomy is important. And we have the the country's largest dung beetle collection. We have more than the Smithsonian. Wow. <laughs> taxonomy is the way that we kind of delimit the little boxes of biological study. 
we have to kind of know how many things there are and how they're related to each other to understand what they are. That's why I think it matters. And the fact is, if you have poor taxonomy, you are making poor hypotheses about the nature of organisms, and you are going to mislead uh, the scientific enterprise. You mislead science because you don't understand what species live in an ecosystem, nor what the causal relationships are. You can imagine people thinking there's only one species of, let's say, snake in a particular ecosystem, but maybe there's actually two or three different species. People thought they were studying the same thing, and then the results don't add up. An incomplete or poorly understood taxonomy has led to people essentially collecting random data. What's happening? What's going on? What's living? And yet, taxonomists are underappreciated. Well, there is. It is frustrating that taxonomy as an endeavor is not as respected in the scientific community as it should be. Because we have a huge biodiversity crisis, we have habitats disappearing at an enormous scale. And, well, if we want to know what we had on the planet and a picture on the evolution that happened on the planet, well, we need to invest in uh, preserving at least in museums, a part of the natural heritage. I just think it's a, it's a natural, it's part of our culture to know with what other organisms and with which species we share the planet. Lots of people want to know what, you know, what's happening, what's going on in the world, what's living in the world. Let's get out of these underground vaults, protecting the collections, and step into life. Step into the outdoors. You've probably done this today. Cross that boundary from your home to the outside world. Outside here, let's try a little exercise. Just imagine the little patch of the world outside your home. Try to picture all the individual species living there. Give you a minute. The next time you're actually outside, pause a few minutes and try to find as many different types of things as you can. Trees grasses, flowers, squirrels, birds, insects. This is what it's like to think like a taxonomist. And if you enjoy it, you can do it. You could be a taxonomist. The field relies on amateurs. Yeah, because there are not enough paid taxonomists in the world. You could name something and immortalize yourself. The process is really simple and straightforward, and uh, that's probably the best way to have it. Let's imagine that you're having a picnic in a Brazilian rainforest, and a beautiful half-inch long beetle with ornate mandibles 
lands on your sandwich. And you think, ah, this is amazing. You capture it in a jar, take it home. Now, after you've spent some time looking around and asking your beetle expert friends about it, they can't make heads or tails of it. And you think you've discovered a new species. Shockingly, it's really easy to name this beetle. I need to write this up somehow. First, you need to describe the species. Then explain why you think this is a new species. And finally, publish it. You can get around this by publishing in, in journalists that don't actually know how things work. But that's essentially all you need to do. You don't need to do very much. A few paragraphs that you need to learn. And that is can be a valid publication. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, ideally, of course, you should uh, you should include some illustrations or photos of what it is, and ideally deposit your specimen somewhere in a museum. Uh, but there there isn't very much to do, really. You can contribute. You can be part of this tribe of taxonomists, a quirky bunch of people who relish the subtle boundaries of life, the order of it all. No matter what goes on in the world. These people have created order. They have grouped these species correctly. I mean, is there anything that a person like that hates more than the, you know, the agent of chaos? Let's go back to America in the early 1800s. Our agent of chaos was a short man. He was very short, stocky. Unkempt. He would grow his beard out. He would wear like the same clothes and they would be just completely wrecked. His name was Constantine Raffinesque. He immigrated from France with very little to his name. He was a striver. He wrote long discourses on zoology and geology. He was one of the first people to really pay attention to the pattern of burial mounds and ceremonial mounds in North American uh, pre-contact history. He wrote a 5,500-word epic poem with footnotes. And he had these revolutionary ideas for biology. He kind of articulated an origin of species before Charles Darwin. And Darwin actually cites him at some point. He also had a lengthy study of the taxonomy of North American plants. He's the authority for some groups to this day. I'm recognizing most of the Raffinesque stuff now. He was a man who invented his own genius as a protective mechanism for some of the difficulties of his life. We meet these types a lot in day-to-day life, right? People who are, people who have a hard time of it, they're sort of, you know, born losers in a sense, and who invent the myth of their own genius to give themselves a place in the world. And uh, Raffinesque is constantly talking about how the establishment has it out for him, how people who are kind of privileged to have roles of scientific um, esteem are undermining him at a, a true genius, right? Like Raffinesque is the true genius, come up from nothing, and people are undermining him because that's the way the status quo works. And I think maybe he truly had convinced himself that he was the greatest biologist who had ever lived. Raffinesque and many of these older guys were not crazy. One of, one of the, the major things in all of this trouble is that you had two kings of botany in the 1800s. Uh-huh. They had a particular 
fixity of mind, and that is that they felt there were too many species. Let's keep it down where we can understand it. And all of this stuff was being done by these amateurs out in California and in the mining country. So it was just that he was producing so much of them. And- it didn't belong to Harvard. But there's something, there's definitely an eccentric quality to what he writes and how he writes it and how he does it. And people who encountered him, uh, including John James Audubon, who met him in the wilds of Kentucky, described him as being an odd duck. Audubon sensed Raffinesque's eagerness, and he pulled a prank on him. So Audubon described a number of species, including ludicrous species like apparently mice with webbed feet, bulletproof scales on fish, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and Raffinesque, either through like extreme naivete or through just overarching ambition, wrote those descriptions up and published them. So there were actually all these species that were on record that didn't exist. They were just a prank that Audubon had pulled. Now, this is just a prank, but Raffinesque had a tendency to publish thousands of species that were suspicious. By describing species that didn't exist, by describing species he'd never seen before, by pretending that what everyone knew was a common variant of a plant was actually a new species, I think there's a real sense that this is the introduction of chaos into an orderly system, and I think that's deeply distressing for people. Then, in late 1840, Constantine Raffinesque dies. People are talking about Raffinesque. The time has come to reckon with it. So let's talk about the Raffinesque problem. And this is where the mean obituary started. As a venting of anger over Raffinesque, the prolific amateur whose work often couldn't be verified. The obituary was their only recourse. And it warned taxonomists of the dangers of their open boundaries. We earnestly hope that never again will it fall to us, nor to our successors, to have to write such an obituary notice as this. Taxonomy has remained very vulnerable to agents of chaos. They still enter the field. There are such people, and some have a very remarkably self-centered personality, and... um, probably mental issues or whatever. One such person who we'll refer to here will remain nameless. You see, these people have been known to go after the detractors. Why is this frustrating for other taxonomists then? Because now we have these hundreds of names that sometimes are very difficult to interpret. And, well, if... You say, you know, if you have worked on a group of um, reptiles for many years and it takes a while to write um, an in-depth and well-researched scientific paper. And in the meantime, another guy just produces a hundred names on your group without much, well, just, you know, in the spare time very quickly, very sloppily. Mm-hmm. And, he's and, got and he's got priority because he published it first. And to twist the knife, if the taxonomists are to respect their own rules, they have to take these agents of chaos seriously. They have to waste their time 
clarifying their descriptions, grinding their teeth. Now that is very frustrating. So why does why does, taxonomy, why does taxonomy allow this to happen? I actually don't know. Because nomenclature allows it to happen, but taxonomists are still free not to use his papers. And there's actually a big movement in the herpetological uh, community not to use his names. And he complains, of course. He said, well, that's against the code. Yeah. Yes, it's against the code, fine. But if, if he just annoys the whole herpetological community constantly and is not stopping, so be it. The scientific community has still the freedom to make judgments. And I, well, as a commissioner, I should probably not um, encourage anybody to neglect the code, but there are special cases when priority is probably not the best thing to do. He's just, it seems like he's just a thorn in your side. Yes. So the question is, like, why respect the code so much that you allow this man to because keep doing everybody, it? Everybody respects the code still, uh-huh. and that's a good thing. Because that? everybody should follow the same rules. Um, if one part of the community decides that following a slightly different way is better for them, yeah. and everybody does it, yeah. well, it's... We don't like it too much because they don't follow our rules. But uh, if it works out, it works out. Yeah. It's just we, we want to avoid chaos that every little group or every country has its own rules. And then we, we can't communicate efficiently. We need to communicate. We need to make sure that we can communicate efficiently. Yeah. It's all in service of that kind of, a, yeah. of, that, of being able to describe something. Yeah. And, being yeah. 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 As a and if something is described and named, then... We're, I have recently, I had a couple of papers, probably here. At this point, Dr. Krill leaps into a stack of papers Um, and pulls something out written in Chinese. So if we didn't have a a uniform nomenclature, I would not be able to use this paper. This is all all in uh, Chinese. I am, because all the names Ah. are the scientific names. And I, I cited these papers, I could use them. (laughs) <laughs> because I knew what it was about, and I had the species. If he had no scientific nomenclature, then using a paper like this would be very difficult. Yeah. Even if, of course, the whole text is difficult to use if you don't read Japanese or Chinese. Um, but still, for uh, my purposes, that I wanted to find out host plants of that species, yeah. well, I could do that. there is still little a responsible taxonomist can do to protect themselves against these agents of chaos beyond writing a mean obituary. The vast majority of the tens of thousands of new species he proposed were objects of derision for all conscientious entomologists. New genera and species were erected in the most reckless manner. We would have been infinitely better off today had he not written or published anything appertaining to the subject.
Taxonomy is important and foundational, but it's also a fragile human endeavor, not a monolithic institution of science and progress sealed off from you. You can name your species if you like after your own dog, and please do. But with solid background research of similar type specimens and consultation with other taxonomists and a thorough description to clearly demarc it as different, please do that. As an institution, taxonomy mirrors the human endeavor. We hope for the best. We open the doors for collaborators and cringe when chaos walks in. We're unable to do much beyond act indignant, hoping that the chaos will somehow see the unwritten rules of morality and won't do us much harm. Then, when the chaos is gone, we'll try to discourage others from harming our work and our way of life. Write mean things about them. Knowing that it will, of course, happen again. This episode was produced by Goat Rodeo in partnership with taxonomists and writers at Nautilus Magazine. Nautilus is a different kind of science magazine. They deliver big science by reporting on a single monthly topic from multiple perspectives. Read a new chapter in the story every Thursday. Go to nautil.us. Special thanks in this episode to Ansel Payne, Frank Krell, Sarah Spaulding, Bill Weber, and Daniel Gustafson. I'm Bishop Sand. Thanks for listening. <laughs>